welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode number 190, 190, 190. And again, if you have any questions or comments, uh, you can eel, email them, not eel mail, but email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com. Or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean, where you find this podcast. So there's a lot going on, and I'm going to start with some very, it's just very unpleasant stuff, but it's about what's going on in our society. Of course, you know, I'm not a big NFL consumer, not a big NFL customer. Um, There are reasons for that that I've gone into in the past, kneeling and other things. Um, But of course, the local team won the Super Bowl, which is, of course, a big deal. Second Super Bowl in a row that people really weren't expecting it, especially about halfway through the season. But anyway, it happened. And after the game, of course, they hold the celebratory parade in downtown Kansas City. And right when the parade and rally ended, uh, there was an eruption of gunfire between two factions that were on the periphery of these things. And one person was killed, young lady who was a Apparently not even related to the whole thing, just a a bystander, uh, some sort of a a Latina music DJ type type person is on the local radio. Um, So there was there was that unfortunate victim. And then there were like 20 others, 20 or 22, I can't remember. And um, a bunch of them were children, you know, and they were hit by some of them were hit by fragments. Fortunately, there weren't a lot of serious injuries. And in fact, some of the people who were wounded were actually some of the perpetrators. Now, this is all this is all very, very bad, very, very bad. And of course, all the local pundits and all the local cheerleaders for the 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 metro area and everything were saying, this is not our Kansas City, blah, 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 going on and on. They touched on well, you know, it's the availability of guns, which is just code words for gun control that I support some sort of stupid gun control. That's all those words are. But what they they failed to realize was, yes, this is your Kansas City, and you've been turning a blind eye to it because everyone from the mayor on down, and we'll talk more about his some of his things later, uh, looks at this place through rose-colored glasses. And they don't see some of the kind of people that are walking around who are the products of a failed public education system, uh, failed law enforcement efforts to to basically get after these gangs and get get uh, disband them, go after their criminal activities. Um, the tolerance for violence, as long as people don't talk to it. The fact that one person was killed, that's that's an everyday thing in this city every day um it just happens in the parts of town that nobody really cares about so when the governor calls them thugs because abs- abs- it's absolutely crazy who would bring firearms to an nfl parade you know i mean who would do that uh, i mean and none of these guys were legal carriers under any sort of law they've record juvenile a couple of them were juveniles we'll talk about that and a couple of them were uh, guys with records and uh so they they have no they have no um 
legal standing to be carrying weapons. They, they can't carry them. They're, by, by law, they're prohibited from them. But they had them and brought them anyway. So the governor calls them thugs, and then the, the mayor, uh, Mr. Quinton Lucas, who's a fool, an absolute fool, basically starts in what is really a a very careful defense of these people in which his his position is that thug is code word for black person and therefore it's a racist and he used the word dog whistle to for everybody to start piling on and it's number one a thug is actually a word from india um that's where it originated from the next thing is it has nothing to do with a person's race nor should anybody feel that these people represent them in any way shape or form these criminals this gang trash um, there's just no way that these you know they are who they are they are what they are they <clears throat> and they have no there's no way that race in in any kind of a subjective or a objective manner plays a an a role in this it is absolutely ludicrous they they were there they did a crime they did a shooting crime and uh i think that's how people with any brains would look at it but the local media went to extend the pol- with with the police with the local politicians they tried to conceal who these people were with their race until they absolutely had to identify them. Now, I, I wonder why that is. I mean, they don't reflect on anybody except their own poor actions. Um, and, and of course, you know, the, the funny part is when they don't tell you what, don't release a description, a name or a picture or mention the person's race. When they don't do that, you automatically assume, well, this must be someone they're covering for. And, uh, you know, if it was, if it fit the, the narrative that they like, which it never does, um, that, you know, this was some disgruntled white person who didn't like the Chiefs because they have a bunch of black players or something and open fire, that would have been, that would have been the hottest flash minutes right after the, the incident. But it wasn't. It wasn't anything like that. And it was, it was simply gangs and, you know, reading some of the, the accounts of it, it was just one group was kind of looking at another group the other group didn't like it they saw that as some sort of challenge and went out and and this guy even said the the main shooter even said he just went crazy and was just shooting it it wildly i mean this is the kind of people that are wandering around this is why we have police to basically uh, keep people like this off the off the streets this is why we have prosecutors this is why we have a justice system. This guy never should have been out on the street. Never should have been there. Um, was just getting over. He was on probation for some other gun-related thing. He'd just gotten off it. it. It's absolutely insane. And yet there are probably hundreds, if not thousands, of these guys wandering around. Not only here, but other places. I mean, you know, it, it goes back to if you take... And you can probably add St. Louis and Kansas City to this. You take Los Angeles, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Detroit. Um, 
probably places around the environs of New York City, like Newark, New Jersey, and some of these other just absolute crime-ridden sinks. You subtract them from the crime totals, and we actually have a lower crime rate than they have in Europe or some of these other places that are touted as, you know, the bastions of, of civilization. Um, you know, it's, just, it's, inc it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible what we've turned inner cities into. Um, absolutely crazy. Now, related to that in a peripheral way is in Wichita, Kansas. Wichita, Kansas is in the, about the middle of the state. It's, it's far away from big urban centers. There's a, you know, when I was a kid, they had what they called the Babe Ruth League. And I guess this is the similar thing called the Jackie Robinson League, the 42 League. And there was a statue of Jackie Robinson, um, a big bronze statue, you know, about life-size statue, I suppose, maybe even a little bit larger. You know, it was a, a, a nice statue, and it was at this field where these kids go and they play in this, this league, and this league is named after Jackie Robinson. And I'm sort of a Jackie Robinson fan, although I like Willie Mays a lot better because he played for my boyhood team that I like better. So anyway... Um, the statue was somebody showed up in the dead of night, cut the statue off at the feet, and stole it. Well, the next day on the radio here, it was being blamed on, well, this had to be, you know, and, and of course they don't want to say white, but so they'll use the code words of people who are angry with the removal of Confederate statues, meaning white people. And, uh, so obviously this was done in retaliation for that and they went on and on and on how this was some sort of a hate crime against a statue well as it turns out it was a scrap meddler who who took it and he basically you know was going to sell it for the scrap metal value these guys go around and if they see an abandoned house they'll go in there and they'll rip all the copper piping out of it and everything else they're thieves and that's what this guy was. He and his friends thought they could melt this thing down and get a lot of uh, money for the scrap metal of value of the bronze. But they never did a retraction in the on the radio or in the newspaper or anything saying, yeah, you know, originally we kind of said this, but that was actually wrong. And, and here's what the actual facts are. Oh, no, they couldn't do that. So now it turns out that from Wichita, the and I suppose they're making a new statue. I, I heard they were. I, I don't. I didn't see anything else on that. But they're going to take the feet of the old statue, which were left behind because that's where they cut off the statue, and they're going to bring it up here to what is known as the Negro Leagues Museum, and it's going to be in the Jackie Robinson display along with a sign that had um, that had bullet holes shot in it, apparently by somebody who didn't like Jackie Robinson or didn't like this deal or you know I, I don't know the, the circumstances of the holes getting shot into the plaque but they're putting this all together now people who are going to see those feet aren't really going to know that this is the work of a scrap meddler who is named Ricky Angel Andrite who hardly seems like a confederate flag waving white supremacist to me in fact I would think that uh, he would not really wave any kind of a flag at all I don't think he has an allegiance to or a particular grudge against Jackie Robinson or against 
you know, the integration of baseball in 1947. So, uh, you know, they have to see it for what it is. But the, the point is, it's going to be displayed at the Negro Leagues Museum falsely as some sort of a demonstration of racism. That's false. That's a false narrative. I mean, they're not going to put these feet in there and then put a sign next to it saying, yeah, these are the feet of the Jackie Robinson statue that was stolen by a scrap meddler. They're not going to do that. They're going to put down that this was these are the feet of a statue of Jackie Robinson that was cut down in Wichita, burned and thrown into a dumpster. And they're going to imply that it was a crime of racism and all that. That is so pathetic. If you're the Negro Leagues Museum, and those are that's their title, they defend it, they, they use it, so um, if they're the Negro Leagues Museum, they should be ashamed of themselves. Why would you why would you propagate a lie? Especially a disgusting lie like that when in fact I will guarantee that most of the people who've donated money to replace the Jackie Robinson statue with a a similar new one, I think they still have the mold and of course now they have the the pieces of the old statue so they could, you know, melt those down, recast the statue and except for the feet. I guess they have to provide new feet. Um and they can they can make a new statue and, and replace it and, and maybe put something around it that would uh, dissuade future scrap meddlers. But I will guarantee that most of the people who donated money to that were probably white. You know, I am sorry, that's that's probably who donated. And uh, so to portray these things as some sort of symbol of overt racism is just a lie. They know it, and they're disgusting enough to do it. It's terrible. Another fake race story that I always like is, you know, I I don't disagree with a lot of the policies of what her name is, Nikki Haley. Um, I don't think she's presidential material. She sort of reminds me of a, a kind of a book-learning version of uh, Sarah Palin. I mean, I really don't think she's really got what it takes to... She doesn't exhibit leadership to me. She exhibits some knowledge, but but not a lot of leadership. So consequently, I'm not really, you know, I'm not excited about her. Nothing, nothing like that. But she told this story. I saw this clip, and it really made me kind of angry because, I, again, just like the Jackie Robinson statue, she tried to create... A, narr- a racial narrative for herself that I don't think exists and the or existed uh, she talks when she was a young woman I would assume around the age of 20 years old uh, or maybe slightly earlier maybe she was a teenager she went into she wanted to go into a beauty pageant and because she's her ancestry is uh, India she's an Indian in this in the India sense that she couldn't get into they didn't know her her words were they didn't know which pageant to put me into because I was too light-skinned for the black pageant and too dark-skinned for the white pageant so I I kind of did some quick math I said how old is Nikki Haley because I could see that happening 
maybe in the 1960s, early 60s, 1950s. She's not that old. In fact, I'm positive she's younger than I am. So I did a quick Wikipedia search and she's 51 years old. So if she was doing this when she was, let's just say, let's, we'll start at 20. So that was 31 years ago. That would be 1993. That is decades past racial segregation, beauty pageants, and and all the rest of it. I mean, that's that's way past that. That that didn't exist. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't <clears throat> some exclusively there are some exclusively black pageants and things that that are that are fine. You know, people want to do that. That's fine. But as far as being the a beauty pageant that just excludes people based on race, that hasn't happened. I wouldn't even think it happened in the 1970s. I would think that that happened maybe early 60s and, and before. Certainly 30 years or more before um, Nikki Haley was participating in those. So I just kind of you know, did some internet research and I can't find anything on that. So I, there, I therefore assume she's lying. She's telling another narrative, trying to appeal to people saying, I'm just a poor brown-skinned person to um with that with her southern accent that she tries to put on i i you know i the whole package is so it's 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 just something you want to step away from it just doesn't it's not appealing in any way shape or form um i just don't think she's she's a very honest person and i don't think people who use racial narratives or hide racial narratives like Mayor Quentin Lucas, like the Negro Leagues Museum, and like Nikki Haley, they're not telling the truth. They're they're just they're using something to create lies. And the real stories about civil rights and struggle and, and all of that, which is which is a very face it a very uncomfortable social history most people want to move past that most people don't want to stay mired in that but it's it's a part of history and and people should understand it but not rewrite it not create this alternative see there's this they're trying to create this alternative weird reality where all that matters is race everything that happens is motivated motivated by race and racial hatred and that's the world we live in and that's not the world we've lived in for a very very long time if if at all now you know i you can go back and you can bring up all the counter data to what these people are saying but what they do now is they personalize it to themselves you know you can't call the animals that showed up to a parade and shot children you can't call them thugs according to quentin lucas put that right around the neck of Quentin Lucas. He can wear that like a cheap suit, like the other cheap suits he wears. He publicly defended people who shot children at a parade. Can't call him that. Oh, that's a racial... He should be the first one saying, these are animals and they should be dealt with. That's a, that, that to me is shows you he lives in an alternate reality. Um, people who are putting... The feet of the statue 
of Jackie Robinson on display as a display of racial animus and hatred and all the rest of it when they know it's not true. They know it's not true, yet the lie is more... The truth doesn't matter as long as people believe the lie because, you know, the end justifies the means. The same thing Nikki Haley. First of all, I... I I don't want to say that Nikki Haley wouldn't do very well in a beauty pageant, but I'm not sure that uh, if she was turned down, it was certainly not because that she had an olive skin tone or they somehow had uh, <clears throat> different different color skin tones for different pageants. Well, I mean, what do they have? I mean, what does she want us to believe? That there are like paint swatches that they put up and they go, oh, you're, you know, and they point up and down. They've got white on the top and, and black on the bottom and all the other colors and all the other skin tones in, in the middle. And, you know, somehow the one that matched her just couldn't get into any pageant. That, that is so insulting. And that person wants to be president of the United States. You can't say something like that and, and do that. So it just goes to show you, uh, those are the kind of people that we have out there. And the media is full of this. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's this there's this book out now that oh I don't even know what it's called, but they they did the uh, the usual liberal talk show thing that it's MAGA racist rural white rage voters are gonna are gonna put Trump back into off. I mean, the, now they're trying this rural white rage. Which, you know, I don't think exists. You come out to rural America, and it is the nicest place. You, you it's a wonderland compared to the inner city. Uh, I've been to several parades, um, and you know, festivals and things in some of these small towns. And I have to say, no one has showed up um, with their gang colors on and shooting children. So there you go. Um, maybe Quentin Lucas. If you bother to read that book, you might just want to keep that in mind that out in rural America, nobody is showing up to parades and shooting children. So, you know, they will create any kind of fiction to get what they want, which is control of our society, control of what you can think, control of what you can say. It's, a, it's, it's very nasty. But let's get past that and kind of go into some gun stuff. The uh, first gun-related thing we'll get into is I notice they've now found LaPierre guilty of mismanaging funds and and all the rest of it. And, and that's all kind of linked back to the fact that the NRA is fundamentally a non-profit and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, he did. He authorized some helicopter rides. There was a glam squad for Mrs. LaPierre. There was, you know, glam squad being, I guess, some hairdressers and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, the, the, they got small ball stuff. Anybody who has got a half of a brain uh, knows that this was trumped up, knows that basically you go into any of the large nonprofits, you're going to find stuff like this. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying... This is not unique, and if they think this is a big gotcha, mo it's not. I mean, think of, look at the look at the Clinton Foundation. They exist 
predominantly to provide jet airplane transport to the Clinton family. Um, that's what they do. And, you know, nobody says boo about that. And I'm sure they buy Bill suits. And when he goes on womenizing, you know, it doesn't have to take much with him when he went down to uh, uh, Epstein's Island. But, you know, when he goes other places, I'm sure they dress him up and all that because it's somehow linked to the foundation. Just like LaPierre's uh, wardrobe was linked to, you know, the NRA. Now, here's the main thing. Okay, he wasted five million bucks. Um, he personally raised like 35 million bucks for the NRA. So, you know, is this the root of evil? Is this the worst thing that's ever happened? Oh, probably not. You know, the, the, the biggest mistake the NRA made was staying incorporated in the state of New York, which they knew is not gun-friendly, which they knew they were gonna, going to elect some DEI, you know, piece of garbage for the Attorney General. And, you know, you listen to that person talk, and she just sounds so ignorant. She's such a, uh, you know, just absolutely disgusting. Um, her command of the English language is just appalling. But anyway, um, you know, it's it's just all part of the picture. Uh, but hopefully that's all over. If they're smart, they'll re, they'll basically um, reincorporate or whatever it is, whatever legal machinations they need to do, they'll do in another state that's more gun-friendly. You know, just like Remington. Remington just moved out of Ilian, New York, where they've been since 1809, and, you know, why is that? Well, it's because of the environment there. It's because of what New York's turned into. It's not because of what Remington's turned into. It's because of what New York has turned into. So, yeah. Another thing is, um, I was talking about the uh, import of the Malaysian-built FNCs that were announced at the SHOT Show. Um, and going back over it, it, it appears that they're going to import them as pistols. How that works, I do not know. I don't know if it's easier to do that or what the deal is. Um, so barrel length and a few other things will be consideration. And of course, um, with the pistol brace thing still kind of out there, is you really, you know, I, I'm not a pistol brace guy because now I think we should have them simply because I don't think that SBR should be regulated on any on any way shape or form so we should be able to put a normal buttstock on something that has shorter than the 16 inch barrel and you know be done with it and uh, that's how, that's what it should be um, but anyway we'll see when they bring it in we'll see you know worst case is if you live in you live in a good state you pay an additional 200 bucks and you put a regular buttstock on it and then your you know life is good so that's just another small update that I have Another quick update, which is kind of funny, is um, I just I could not help myself. I had to try paper patching some bullets, and I, I they were relatively successful. And I also wanted to create. I had two goals. Number one was to get a successful paper patched bullet, which I got. The next uh, thing I had was to get a successful reduced load mimicking the martini henry carbine load for my martini henry um 
And my third goal, actually I had three goals I guess, was to use a black powder substitute as propellant because you know black powder is just hard to get and so it's just a lot easier if I can uh, use a substitute for loads that I where I don't really need the authenticity of black powder if I'm just you know for range loads or for loads that you know somebody would like to try the rifle well giving them a reduced power load is a carbine the carbine load in the rifle is is a pretty good option so so I developed that um, for the bullet I didn't there are molds out there for about a hundred bucks that I could I could have gotten but I actually had a Lee 457 400 grain bullet the carbine bullet for the Martini Henry was about 457 458 it was smooth sided and it was 400 in 10 grains. Now these bullets come out a little bit heavier out of my mold because of the way I they just they just do. So I'm really close. I'm within a few grains of the 410 grains. So the bullet is not however um, flat-sided. It does have grease grooves but they're very shallow. They're for uh, smokeless powder lube and they're they're very small too. They're shallow and small so it's just about like having um, a flats a um, smooth sided bullet so I was able to paper patch those I loaded them over 70 grains of Pyrodex RS and I used uh, I had to use a little bit of filler and I used you know the grease wads and the you know the grease cookie and the wads I don't want to go over the whole loading thing but used all that um, and it came out I test fired it and they were very successful at 50 yards they um, shot a, a tight group um, just above the point of aim with the sight set at 100 yards so I think I'm probably pretty good at 100 yards and we'll see um, you know that it should be a it should be a very entertaining load to shoot uh, it'll be the kind of load that you can you can load a bunch up on and if you're you know it's accurate enough that you can do the kind of shooting you want to do but it's light recoil and it's not resource intensive using uh, using black powder which is getting harder to it's not so much that it's hard to find but it's difficult to to procure at least where I am um, you know you can order it in a five god what is it you gotta order you order about a hundred dollars worth I think it's like four or five cans so you order like five pounds of it comes about a hundred bucks you pay the hazardous charge on top of that but then there are some storage things that are on top. If you got more than five pounds, I think you've got to have, um, you know, some other things. And so, anyway, I usually keep just a couple, two, three pounds on hand, and you know, it's uh, it's difficult sometimes. So I was I've been able to get in with uh, a group buy, and we buy five cans, and everybody gets one or two. So, anyway, that's the uh, that's the story there. Uh, oh, one other one other thing. I I put this load on. I think it was British military forums and there's just crickets you know I guess they don't really like I thought they'd be kind of excited about that because especially if you're you know you can get a Lee mold anywhere that you can get those overseas and I think you can get pyrodex and other things um, you know if, if you can't get black powder the pyrodex it's nice to know that 70 grains of pyrodex and this bullet paper patched will 
will get you in the ballpark you know is it historically perfectly accurate no but it it seems to replicate that carbine load and just well enough uh for shooting it's it's just fine but yeah i published it there in absolute crickets nobody uh nobody said anything and i thought actually some people would find it helpful but i guess they don't all right let's head straight into questions and answers this is my favorite part of the whole thing uh, number one and again a lot there's since there's been so much black powder cartridge activity um, some of these are have generated questions so what is a progressive bore and as far as I know really only the Martini Henry has a progressive bore although others may too I'm not I'm not saying they don't the one I know of is the Martini Henry and it, it basically at the breech end starts out larger and then progressively narrows to the muzzle so a martini henry starts out at about four god what is it about 470 469 470 and then ends up at the muzzle at 458 and there's actually a point about a third of the way up the barrel where it really narrows the most it's not like it's a straight narrowing you know like it's a constant narrowing it's it's actually almost got a step in the barrel where it does that and that's why paper patching bullets is so effective uh, that paper grabs the rifling um, the initial rifling in the wide end of the bore the large end of the bore near the breech and it starts spinning the bullet then the bullet as it goes down the the paper will eventually shed and the bullet will be already spinning and engaging the rifling towards the uh, towards the muzzle end of the bore so what that what that effectively does is it leaves you a large chamber a larger chamber area and um, the initial part of the bore so it can collect a lot of the fouling because in a service rifle you may have to fire it a couple hundred times before you have the opportunity to to clean it so it, it was done to manage fouling so it, fouling would have a place to build up that's why you would use a progressive bore so that's what it is what is next question is what is progressive rifling okay it's it's almost the same theory progressive rifling is the rifling is deeper at the breech end than it is at the muzzle and it gradually the the difference you know it gradually becomes less deep as you get to the bore and the reason for that was with the uh, rifled muskets you would use basically kind of soft lead projectile the mini a type bullets and a lot of times these had a copper or iron cup at the bottom so the powder charge would push that forward and get that get the skirt of the bullet to engrave the right get into the rifling right away and get it spinning um, now remember these things had like one turn in 78 inches or something so it wasn't a fast rate of turn but they wanted to get it into the rifling so that it would be spinning when it left the uh, when it left the muzzle so that's all it was was just to enhance that um, constant depth rifling which is our next question is what you see in a lot of mo uh, a lot of modern reproductions 
of rifled muskets and it's not as good because the bullet doesn't grab it's it's the rifling is the same depth all the way back and it's much less expensive to do that than it is progressive depth rifling is very expensive to do uh, constant depth is like every other every, almost every modern gun out there has got progressive um, or I'm sorry constant depth rifling so you know it's just they, they use a brooch they broach the barrel it's out and uh, it's got rifling and that's why some of the modern reproductions don't shoot as well as the originals especially at longer distance so that's basically our first three questions right there it's about rifling uh, used in in black powder and later later weapons I don't think there's any smokeless um, progressive rifling examples I can think of um, there's 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 all kinds of weird things out there there's also gain twist rifling where the rifling the twist rate increases as you get to the muzzle I know Carcanos some Carcanos had that um, I think they found that ballistically it doesn't make a difference it doesn't it was more trouble than it's worth so therefore I don't think that there's uh, been a whole lot of that I think basically it's constant depth cut rifling and that's what the uh, um, that is what it it essentially is uh, for every every modern gun every modern pistol pistols and rifles same thing just the twist rates are the only things that are different okay your thoughts on paper patching well in some rifles it's it's essential in others it's it's probably not essential but it still can be done um, it require it it's going to require kind of an undersized bullet so you can build up the patching around it and uh, depending on the velocity you drive it at the success will will rate the, the funny part is like um, 5070 really doesn't use paper patched bullets they just kind of cast them and went um, other ones other ones do you can you can paper patch essentially anything it, it all comes down to those critical dimensions of your your bore diameter and the bullets you are using to paper patch have to be undersized that enough so that you can get the patch around the bullet and it's not over oversized so yeah that's the that's the deal it's a lot of work uh, I think it's kind of fun and some rifles really kind of demand it like the Martini Henry sort of they do their best work with them others not so much a 4570 you can go either way either with just a traditional grease groove bullet or with a paper patch bullet you can go either way um, I prefer for all of those I prefer the the except for the Martini Henry I prefer the grease groove bullets but that's just me but it is a lot of work okay our next question Turkish 8 millimeter Mauser ammo is it safe well I'm going to create a heresy here and tell you that in spite of everything you see on the internet um, I have a batch of it a large batch and you know I have found it to be safe um, I what I did was I I took out a small amount and I said I'm gonna fire this in my 98k and 
you know, let's just see if it's if it's bad or not. A friend of the podcast said he had shot some and hadn't, and, and it had been all right. So I'm like, well, I'll give it a try. Now understand, I would only use this stuff in in good quality bolt actions. I mean, I would not use it in. I would use it in in um, you know Mauser 98 bolt actions. I would not use it in a Hakim. I would not use it in a a commission rifle or or anything else. Um, and it didn't seem to be uh, you know a big deal. It just it was just Mauser ammo. Shot actually very well. Shot actually very accurately. Uh, uh, so I was and now it is of course corrosive so you have to do all the things that corrosive ammunition causes you to do with it but um, you know it's um, you know you clean it you do what you need to do but it seems to be okay I'll keep I'll keep you posted but I did see the forgotten weapons one where you know his his stock cracked so we'll we'll see how that that all goes but I just don't see that um, in the stuff I have so again I and that stuff's back on the market again you know that I don't know if it's you know when I bought mine and I hate to mention it boy it was a long time ago uh, you could buy the god I think it's a 1400 round box and they were they were very cheap um, they were very inexpensive now you see the bandoliers of it out there and I I, I don't know if it's any kind of newer stuff that or different stuff that has come in, um, a different lot that has come in, or or what, uh, or if it's just people who bought the the big box like I did, and now they're they're <clears throat> making some money by portioning out these uh, um, ba selling the individual bandoliers. So we'll see. But yeah, it seems to be okay. I don't, you know. Of course, you'll see you'll read all kinds of doom and gloom on the internet, but obviously people are out there shooting this stuff, and there's you know, it doesn't seem to uh, be this big hue and cry. So we'll we'll see how that goes. But is it safe? Well, you got to figure that out for yourself, I suppose. Uh, one of the things I did do was um, buy a set of dies. So in case I found that that I was getting pressure signs or or some other uh, abnormal s sign that the ammunition was abnormal, I could pull the bullet dump the powder charge and then replace it with a a good modern powder charge and you know go from there reseat the bullet and go from there but I haven't needed to do that yet so if you're going to purchase a bunch of that stuff and you do hand load uh, having some 8mm Mauser dies and a, uh, a bullet puller <laughs> will, will probably uh, be smart thing to have okay next question Will fixing a bayonet on a rifle change the point of impact? Uh, in my experience, and I haven't done this a whole lot, uh, yes, it will. It certainly will. Uh, now, for close quarters, close combat out to 100 yards, it doesn't make a difference. Um, you know, if you shoot a little to the right, a little to the left, a little bit high, it's usually something like high into the right, or it might be low into the left. <clears throat> It's usually some some combination of things like that. Um, I don't do it very often, and uh, um, you know, it just it's just one of those things. I, I do collect the bayonets for for the rifles that I have because I think it just makes a nice. I like to have the original 
sling or the original style sling and I'd like to have the uh, the bayonet with the uh, frog and uh, um, scabbard you know so anyway that's but occasionally it is kind of fun to, to do that I always thought it'd be fun to have a match where of like a fixed bayonets match uh, at a hundred yards and maybe maybe we'll do that soon uh, here's another question will a US Krag bayonet fit on an M1903 Springfield rifle I think I had this a couple months ago but uh, I'll go ahead and uh, answer it yes it will uh, a Krag bayonet will fit on a 1903 Springfield and an M1 Garand it will uh, as a matter of fact until they start started using M14s West Point um, their drill teams and and the other the other uh, activities they had that used uh, color guards and such that used uh, fixed bayonets on rifles had crag bayonets which were chromed to match either their Springfields or their their M1 Garands and um, you know that's the bayonet they used and apparently those things were they they'd been scrubbed of markings and heavily chromed. And they had those for years and years and years. So if you ever find a Krag bayonet with no markings and a chrome plating on it, that's obviously you know some sort of an older, an older edition. Uh, you might have one of the old West Point bayonets. You know that's, but I imagine that you know maybe some other ones used it too. And and it was just I think simply a fact it wasn't, it wasn't because of any other reason that than that. Uh, hey, we have them. They fit. So just continue to use them, you know, that, that type of deal. But yes, it will. I have one. I do not have a Krag long rifle. I have a Krag carbine. But um, I did uh, stumble across a Krag bayonet. And I, I put it on a, you know, low number Springfield, you know, kind of for display. And it looks fine. It doesn't look out of place on it or anything. It's, it's, it looks fine. Fits fine. Looks fine. So it's just kind of fun to have. Okay, here's another question. Who were the Fenians, F-E-N-N-I-A-N-S, that attacked Canada from the U.S. in the 1860s and 1870s? Um, I don't know a lot about them. I know there was a thing called the Fenian Brotherhood, which was an Irish independence movement, which was both in Ireland and in the United States. You know, a lot of immigrants came over. A lot of Irish immigrants fought actually on both sides of the Civil War. And... Uh, after the war they decided that to try to get and this is you know again truth is stranger than fiction in order to gain independence for Ireland they thought if they could seize and occupy a portion of Canada that they could basically do a trade now I, I don't think the British ever would have gone for anything close to that but anyway that was their strategy um, and so surreptitiously they tried to get uh, conversions of Springfield muskets, the Allen conversion, which um, you know became the trapdoor Springfield, the 1873 Springfield. But it went through a bunch of. Remember, it went through the 58 rimfire, then 5070, and then eventually 4570. So they tried to get those. They couldn't do it. The government armory said, "No, that that's ours." We're you know just kind of turned away their uh, their pleas. So they got a bunch of other types of uh, they got some other conversions and um, they actually were inferior to the uh, Springfield ones but anyway they went they 
they attacked Canada in 1866. They were basically kicked out. Um, you know, they won the battle initially, but then, you know, all the other militia and, and British um, regular troops started coming there, and they, they eventually they had to go. Then they tried it again. Was it 1870, I think? And by 1870, um, the... Um, uh, Canadian militia had Snyder carbines and rifles, so they, you know, they they were able to to basically repel them again. The U.S. government finally caught on to these, caught on to the Fenians, and did, you know, when they were run back across the border, U.S. government was waiting there and said, you, I'm, I'm sure it was probably militia and irregular troops, just grabbed these guys up, disarmed them, told them don't do this anymore. And I don't think the Fanians ever considered that strategy uh, worthwhile. And the U.S. government was, of course, very displeased at that because Canada, a peaceful nation, you know, you can't just have some armed political group with a different agenda invade a friendly neighbor country. So, yeah, the Fenians kind of wore out their welcome. Uh, they did continue over in Ireland, and, you know, eventually they won their cause in 1916 and... and um, you know, got partial, you know, got got partial independence and went through that process of getting full independence. Okay, next question. How extensively were M1 carbines used in the Vietnam War? I, I don't know how extensively, but I do know that they, they were very commonplace there because they'd been given as military aid to the South Vietnamese and, and to, you know, the friendly militias that that uh, we were arming and training. I know M1 carbines were popular there. And of course, if you're an advisor, you want kind of the same ammo and the same weapon um, for interchangeability reasons. So I'm sure a lot of them were used that way. I do know um, a personal friend of mine was a Marine in Vietnam and he, when he went into country as a replacement, um, he was held at some, uh, you know, some base, you know, you get off the plane and you're at a, at a base. And, um, so he was, he was at this kind of staging area base, and they said, "Hey, you, you know, you got to be armed. So here's your, here's your, here's an M1 carbine you can carry around for a while." So for a couple of weeks, he carried around an M1 carbine while he did. Uh, um, he was kind of a, a he was a lower enlisted guy, so he just he was given menial chores to do around the deal, but he had to be armed in case the the base was attacked, and he had an M2 carbine, so. I can imagine that uh, there quite a few of them were uh, uh, were used there, and uh, you know who knows that'd be a nice wave of surplus to get back if it if it could ever show up. So we'll see. Okay, next question: Did the United States make a mistake adopting the Krag rifle in 1892? I think the answer to that question is no and yes. Uh, no, because they needed a modern rifle right away. And, and actually, 1892 was, you know, that was a couple of years. There were, there were, you know, European armies were getting fitted out with, uh, you know, 1889 Mausers, 1888 Commission Rifle, the 1886 Labelle, you know, the, the Europeans were, were a couple years ahead getting fitted out with all this. And waiting had the advantage of you could get a superior system. Unfortunately, that was not the Krag. The Krag was not a superior system. 
you know, in 1891, the Moisin Nagant, you know, was starting to, that was starting to, to come in, you know, um, the 1891 Carcano, all, you know, everybody was getting these, uh, um, basically, I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw a distinction. They were getting the smokeless powder rifles that had a magazine capacity, and it's, how it worked out was a was how you viewed that magazine capacity uh the the early the you know the lee metfords and and uh the crag and and probably some others if a rifle was equipped with a magazine cutoff you have to look at it very carefully and say is this a magazine fed rifle or is this a single shot rifle with a reserve of cartridges held in a magazine and it's a very subtle difference the loading the crag especially under pressure is very difficult it is it is difficult there's just no way about it the crag was really in my mind it was designed that you would load your magazine when you're you know before you move out you have it and keep it loaded and when you're engaging the enemy, you're, you you have the magazine cut off on, and you're you're using it as a single shot. And only if the enemy is charging or there's some other there's some other emergency, do you flip the magazine cut off to the off position and then use the rounds that are in your uh, um, your magazine. That's very different than the charger loading um, Mauser. Um, as put in by the 1893, even the 1889, the original Lee Metfords were the, kind of the same way. You know, th those things they had an eight-shot magazine, and then you know you would you would had the top, so you you had eight rounds in reserve, and then one would use it as a single shot. Uh, eventually, that all kind of went away, and I think the last rifle that ever had a magazine cut off was the 03 A3 Springfield of World War II and that's simply because it inherited it from the 1903 Springfield design. Now the reason you would have a magazine cut off to begin with is because military leaders were paranoid about running out of ammunition. <clears throat> so so the magazine cut off was really supposed to be the, the kind of the fire discipline tool that you would use. You gotta remember a lot of these guys they still, you know, firing in ranks, this which is why we got thirty inch barrels and, and some of these other things. They they thought that, you know, armies would would still do that. If not against each other, certainly against, you know, colonial insurgent forces, you know. Um, so, you know, therefore, you know, if you're you know, if you've got outposts that are 1500 miles away like you would in North America or thousands of miles away like you would in the British Empire you know resupplying with ammunition becomes a uh, an ammunition fire fire discipline become a big issue um, you know they places like Khartoum and all these other things were still in people's minds you know um, you know running out of being isolated and not having the ability to resupply was something that they were very, very afraid of, very afraid of. 
So that got us a rifle like the Krag, which, uh, they, which was found out in the Spanish-American War. Balli- you know, all the myths aside, ballistically it wasn't bad. Uh, it handled well. Uh, it was very accurate. It was a very good rifle in every respect, except loading it was cumbersome. Uh, loading it through that side gate is cumbersome, especially um, when you're under fire, under duress. It just—it's not a fun thing to do. I don't even enjoy it sometimes on the range. I can find—you know—the the cartridges can get a little wonky in it. And while there are probably people who have better dexterity than I do, um, you know, it's—it's—it's not—it's not, uh, it's not a uh, uh, something you just want to do all the time. After a while, you'd say, "Hey, there's got to be a better system." There's got to be a better system, and there was. It was the charger loading. Um, say what you want to about it. Uh, it worked at the time. It worked much better than anything else. It was it was a big leap, and in fact, they tried to adapt Craig to it, which with with you know, of course, disappointing results. Um, you know, it, it's unfortunately, it's one of those things that has to be designed in. You just can't add it on. So that's how that that's how that worked. So everybody was a uh, was a little you know had different ideas about it. Uh, the Manlicker system was a good system uh, in many ways. You know, you just kind of drop the packet of cartridges in, as with the Labelle. You kind, no, I'm sorry, not the Labelle, the Berthier. Um, you know, you drop these little packets. These little clips of cartridges in, and and essentially when they're done, they fall out the bottom. You know. You know that was a that was a reasonable system. Uh, unfortunately, dirt could get inside. Then the the French actually got to the point where they had the little door on the bottom, which, you know, more stuff to mess with. Um, they had a little door on the bottom of the magazine, so when you fired your last round, you would open that up, and the clip would fall out the bottom. Um, you know, again, not not the best thing, but it's what they came up with. Uh, but the the single clip, it, the other beautiful part about the Mauser clip is it took less, um, <laughs> it took less material. It was easier to make, less susceptible to bending, and all the other stuff. You know, the with the uh, Mannlicher style clips and Berthier style clips. You know, once they get bent, they're they're pretty much done. Um, so, you know, with Mauser clips, you could just recharge them. You know, if your if your ammunition was somehow loose, uh, but mostly they came pre-packed, so you know it was pretty efficient. But that was a lot better than the Krag system. Even the uh, you know a lot of people trash on the Moise and the Gant, but I think for 1891 it was an excellent, excellent rifle and system. It had the cl- it had the uh, stripper clip loading. Um, you know, it, it, it is what it is. It was, it was a reliable, good rifle. Lasted uh, uh, several small things and two world wars. So you know, and I tell you what, they are they are a hoot to shoot. They are so much fun to shoot. Um, so you know, those were those designs were there. The we would have, we would have done a lot better off. Um, was something else other than the Krag side loading. If there had been a, if you could have taken the Krag rifle, not had the side loading gate magazine, all that, all that junk out of there, and had even a Moisen style um, 
magazine and loading regimen. It had a much better, much better rifle. Um, could have been easy because they're both rimmed cartridges and and uh, could have easily been done. Uh, that would have been a much better, a much better rifle than uh, than the side the side magazine on the Krag. As a matter of fact, I, I always thought that the Krag looks it's a beautiful rifle, looks great. The side magazine always looks like it's something that's been cludged on there. Um, it it always kind of looks odd and out of place, and that, I guess that's because there weren't that many crags. I mean, outside of Denmark, Norway, and United States, nobody, no, there were no other takers. So there you go. But anyway, yes, it, we needed a new rifle. The crag, as they found out, was not the answer. Um, and it's a, it's amazing. Well, you know, we did kind of adopt something that was like the 93 the, the 1903 Springfield is a beautiful design it really is a nice nice rifle it's a beautiful design so but it, it took it did take a little while to get there that's for sure that's for sure anyway that's it for this edition of old school guns again if you have any questions or comments you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.